Would you pray with me as we approach the scriptures this morning? Father, we, uh, we consider what we've just heard, the account of a 12-year-old girl being raised from death to life, and we think about the miracle of our own salvation in Christ, and we just marvel at your grace. Thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation, which we've been singing about. Thank you for the, the gift of your spirit, which in Jesus unites us together and empowers us to do what we could never do on our own behalf. Uh, and Lord, we pray now that as we turn our attention now squarely to your word, we just pray that you would build us up, that you would grow us up into the image and likeness of Christ, our King, Lord. You're good, and so now in this very time, guard us from error, guide us in your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I'm grateful to be here with you. I was told that as we opened the service today, the light on my microphone was yellow instead of green, which is fairly hard for a colorblind guy to distinguish the difference between. So, can you hear me now? Yeah, amen. Okay. All right, well, uh, would you think with me as we begin our time in Scripture this morning, just for a moment, think with me, you may need to use your sanctified imaginations for this, about this question. What might Jesus have been like as a child? You ever let your mind go there before? There's no shortage of theories out there, including some juicy, extra-biblical writings filled with fantastical stories, stories about Jesus making clay birds come to life. I'm not kidding. Stories about Jesus stretching a piece of wood that his carpenter father had cut too short. All kinds of things. Now, I guess it's possible that these things or things like them may have happened in Jesus' childhood, but nothing like this is uh, given to us in Scripture, so we can't ultimately put our confidence in accounts like that. Simply stated, man's words are one thing, but the inspired words that God gives to us in Scripture, and they are in an entirely different category, aren't they? To quote its own testimony about itself, Scripture says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God's word, friends, is our authority, our final authority for all life and living. And today is an appropriate reminder for us, I think, as we come to the place in the Gospel of Luke, as we've been studying together, where we consider Jesus' childhood May this be a reminder to us this morning that the Bible is not a textbook. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions or our theological queries. That's not why it was written. God doesn't give us everything we'd like to know. He gives us what he deems necessary to know, everything necessary for life and godliness. Here's the point. After Jesus' birth narrative, after his infancy account, of which we have heard much this Christmas season as we've been digging in the Gospel of Luke, we have almost nothing. 
recorded about the rest of Jesus' childhood in all of Scripture. Almost nothing. There's nothing in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus' childhood, nothing before Jesus' adult ministry. There's nothing in the Gospel of John before Jesus' adult ministry. And all we get in Matthew, post-infancy, about Jesus' life is a brief record about how Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus fled to Egypt and stayed there to escape the wrath of King Herod. They eventually, once Herod dies, settle back in Nazareth to fulfill the prophecy, he shall be called the Nazarene. That's it. That's all Matthew gives us. So, we're left with the Gospel of Luke again. And what Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives to us about Jesus' childhood is essentially all we have. And so, would you open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the very end of Luke chapter 2, We'll begin reading together in Luke 2.39, and we'll read to the end of the chapter and, and work our way back through it, making some observation and, uh, and points of application along the way. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. Now, stay tuned as we're reading, because in the passage we're about to read, we encounter the very first words of Jesus himself spoken in all of Scripture. Interesting. Very first words of Christ himself recorded for us in Holy Scripture. Luke 2, beginning in verse 39. Let's, let's read together. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him after Three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, it's interesting to note that Jesus was not left behind unintentionally. Look with me at verse 43. We clearly see Scripture tell us that the boy Jesus stayed behind, like on purpose. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And we see later in Jesus' response to his parents when he's finally found that, that he had an agenda. He, he knew why he was doing and uh, what he was doing, excuse me, and, and what he was up to. And yet... Before we get too far ahead, let's pause to consider the human element here. 
Jesus' plan, Jesus' actions, as righteous as they were always, did not shield Mary and Joseph from pain, did they? We see this often. We ring this bell all throughout Scripture. Being with Jesus does not always translate to smooth sailing. Verse 48, they were in great distress. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you parents and grandparents know all too well that sick-to-your-stomach feeling of not knowing where a child is. Some kind of a mix of desperation blended with sheer fear. Five minutes feels like an eternity, doesn't it? Try 50 minutes. What would you do as a parent, as a grandparent, if you were in that situation and, and, and an hour were to elapse and you just, you just didn't, didn't know where your child was? Try, try three days. Now, we know that... Mary and Joseph and Jesus' family, they were traveling in a caravan because verse 44 refers to the group that they were in, the group of relatives and and acquaintances. This was common practice at that time for safety and for for protection. It was wise to travel in a a caravan, a group of people, uh, as the faithful Jews made their way several times a year, particularly the men, but sometimes their families with them to worship in Jerusalem, always up. Uh, as you would travel to Jerusalem. And, and this caravan, we're told, made a day's journey. Often the men would travel separately apart from the women and the children. And, uh, and Scripture doesn't give us any fodder about whose fault this was. Was Mary thinking that he was with Joseph? Joseph thinking he was with Mary? We, we don't know that information. But they travel a day's journey. And, and likely at the end of that day, the caravan would, would come together and prepare for a camp. At the end of that day, time, they realize Jesus is not here. And so after scrambling, they, they turn tail and head back to Jerusalem an entire another day back. That's two days. And then finally, they find him the, the third day there in Jerusalem at the temple. And they're, they're confounded when they finally find their son by the scene that's unfolding before them. Let's look again at verses 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed, amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, we we don't know all the particulars of Jesus' discussion here with the Jewish teachers, but verse 47 gives us a helpful clue as Jesus is listening and asking questions, the teachers are, highlight that word. If you're someone who marks, marks your Bible and, and takes notes, the teachers were, the word is amazed by his answers and, and the, the truths, the depth that they contained. So Jesus here is not only playing the part of a sponge as a 12-year-old boy, Merely listening and asking some questions here and there. No, Jesus is also engaged in the dialogue. There's some sort of a going back and forth with these teachers. He's providing answers, and those answers are category-breaking. They're amazing to these learned rabbis, the understanding of this untrained young Jewish boy. 
It's worth noting the weight of that word. I keep dancing around it, amazed, in verse 47. Literally translated from Greek to English, that word can mean utterly astounded, even overwhelmed or confounded. In fact, the next time that Luke uses this same word, amazed, is in chapter 8. He uses it to describe the reaction when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Bill just read us that account. That kind of amazement is what we're talking about. That's the word, same word, about their response in raising a girl from the dead. By the way, it's curious to know, and I don't know what you'd do with this, but the, the girl he raises from the dead also happens to be 12 years old. Huh. Anyway, this is, this is the level, the weight of amazement that Jesus, with his responses, strikes into those who are hearing him. Suffice it to say, the teachers are not merely looking at young Jesus with an approving nod, thinking, ah, this kid's pretty sharp. He must be studying his theology flashcards. Now, again, they are utterly astounded with the things coming out of this boy's mouth. And they weren't the only ones. Look with me at verse 48. When his parents finally find him in the temple, they too are astonished at the scene that's unfolding before them. Now we're finally approaching the climax of the narrative here. Mary, and I can't even begin to imagine the weight of her concern and, and relief, perhaps mixed with some anger. I, I don't know. We don't, we're, we're not told, but Mary's motherly concern somehow boils over into her question here in verse 48. And his mother said to him, son, what in the world? Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you. We're worried sick. We're in great distress. And what we have in response to Mary's mild rebuke is the very first recorded words of Jesus. Here they are. The first time we find Jesus speaking in all of Holy Scripture. In fact, these are the only words that God has given us from Jesus' childhood spoken by him. And it's a one-liner. Look at with me in uh, verse, verse 49. Luke 2, 49. And he said to them, this is what we get. Why were you looking for me? Jesus is correcting his mother's correction. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold the phone. Must be. He said, I must be in my father's house, not, not our father's house. The one statement we get from Jesus is, my father's house. Now we need to pause here for just a moment and understand the weight of what Jesus is communicating. Friends, this is a massive and unprecedented claim by a 12-year-old kid. There were a few times up to this point in, in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, when collectively the people of God, like as a whole, the whole nation of Israel, would refer to God as our Father. Not very often, but it, it would happen collectively occasionally, but never, like precisely goose egg times, zero, had an individual ever presumed 
to speak of God personally, intimately as my Father. It just didn't happen. This just wasn't a thing until right here in this moment. This is the first time in all of Scripture that an individual would claim such an intimate relationship with Almighty God. And now, now, it's, it's hard for us almost to, to imagine, but because of this Jesus, because of who He is and, and what He's done on the cross and through His resurrection, this concept of God as Father is now one of the primary ways that we relate to God. He teaches us, does He not, to pray. We did this last week. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, be your name. And, and remember, after his resurrection from the dead, it's kind of a big deal, his very first command that Jesus gives is to a mind-blown Mary Magdalene. And he tells her, go tell my brothers. Huh. Brothers. And say to them, here's what I want you to say, Mary. I am ascending to my father and your father. Do you see what he's doing? He is extending to us as a result of his death and his resurrection from the grave. That same intimate familial relationship that he has always had from eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And now we are invited in through Christ to that intimacy. I just don't know how to make this click. This is a very big deal. So now, friends, we can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a, a hope with a heartbeat through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Isn't this good? All the law, all the prophets is meant to, to, to culminate, to terminate on this one person, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And He shows up and He clarifies to us what God always meant. In his relationship with his people, he said, let me teach you, he is the heavenly father, my father. And now because I'm here, now because of what I'm going to do, your father too. Wow. All right. I, I, sh I should acknowledge that the end of this amazing statement by Jesus, this first ever recorded statement from Jesus, the end of verse 49, is a bit difficult to translate from the Greek to the English. In fact, some of you may even have a footnote here in your Bibles. Given the context, the location, which was in the temple, most translations opt to, to translate the end of verse 49 as, in my father's house. Although there is one popular translation that, that renders the same Greek phrase, again, it's just, just hard to translate from Greek to English, about my father's business. Some of you may have, ha may have that translation or be familiar with that translation. Now, 
If you're interested, and, and you may be, I like to geek out on this kind of stuff, you can look into the efficacy of this Greek-English translation. Why do some translations say Father's house? Why do others say Father's business? But, but we're not going to get mired in those weeds now. But for our purposes today, I just want us to see the overarching point. Jesus is clearly and intimately identifying himself with God as his Father, this is a profound moment, a high watermark, if you will. And, and yet, as big as this is, we see an interesting response to it, don't we, in verse 50? What's the response? <laughs> right, right over their heads. They totally missed it. Verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They didn't have a category in their minds for Almighty God as Father. And yet, isn't this the sort of thing that we see all across the board when Jesus steps onto the scene? A failure on our part to understand what he's saying. It's, a, it's not a result of Jesus' lack of clarity. Jesus speaks plainly to his disciples. You'll remember how he tells them three times like black and white, I'm going to die. Not only does he indicate that he will die, he even gives them in, gospel, in Matthew's gospel the manner of his death. Hey, guys, I'm going to be crucified. I'm telling you ahead of time, this is going to happen. And then he tells them, after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. Anything unclear about that? And yet no one. Like, precisely zero people seem to have the ability to grasp this as it's unfolding before them. Friends, welcome to the club. The question for you and for me, just like the disciples, just like Jesus' parents, is not if God's ways are going to be confusing to you, perhaps even perplexing to you at times. It's not if, it's, it's when and, and how are you going to respond at those times when you can't quite wrap your fingers around God's ways or his word. The prophet Isaiah says it well, doesn't he? In chapter 55, many of you are familiar with this. God speaks through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, here's, here's how high God's thoughts are. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, that's how high my ways are than your ways. Pretty high, would you agree? That's how higher, much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. Translation, God's not like you. He's not like me. He is altogether different, high, and, and holy. And the question is not if his ways will be at times mysterious, perhaps preposterous to us, but rather what are we going to do when we're navigating through life and we just are coming unraveled because we can't understand how what we're experiencing or, or wrestling with jives with a loving God and his ways. Well, we'll see in just a moment how Mary's response in this time of confusion is instructive for us. 
We'll, uh, we'll close with that as our application. So we're, we're circling back. But, but first, before we get there, let's, let's not miss here in this text the wonder of Jesus' response. This is just mind-blowing to me. He, he's there for three days engaging with the teachers, astounding them with his, with his answers. And then his parents finally show up. Jesus drops this truth bomb that changes our understanding of how to relate to holy God. And then it says, look at verse 51, the beginning. He went down with them and was, what's that word? He was God the Son, the co-creator of the cosmos, the one through whom Everything was made. Without him, nothing was made that was made, John tells us. He was submissive to them. They didn't even understand what he had just told them about how to relate to God. And yet, here he is, God the Son, submitting himself to his earthly parents, his, his mother and adopted father, if you will. This is amazing. Luke makes sure to tell us that Jesus is obedient to Joseph and Mary. God the Son, submissive to them. Let's, let's pause for a moment because this is just glaring in, in our face. Children, teenagers, you think it's hard submitting to your parents? I mean, if ever there was a child that had the right to demand his own way, this is the one. <laughs> This is the moment. This is it. And yet, although he has every authority to put them in their place and to start calling the shots, what does Almighty God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, what's he do? Well, he, he obeys. He submits. This is, this is mind-boggling. And, and I think it has some simple application for us in our lives today in 2023. To be sure, Jesus' priority was always first, the will of his heavenly Father. You caught the imperative there, didn't you? I must be. Didn't you know that I must be about my Father's business? Jesus' priority is the vertical relationship with God, His Father, and yet that vertical relationship does not ever cause Him to devalue or even disrespect the obedience, the, the right respect, the submission that He has to His earthly parents. Not once did He break a single command of God. He embodied the commandment to respect, to obey his parents. He delighted in the law of the Lord and never once stepped one way out of the path. In every way, friends, this text is highlighting the fact that Jesus is God and his Son on two levels. First, he's the Son of God. That's the vertical domain, the vertical relationship. And yet he's also, in a very real sense, the Son of Mary. And this is just, this is Christianity 101. This is critical for us to understand. Jesus is, as they say in the, in the creeds of our faith, truly God and truly man. There, 
there is no one like him. He's unique. He is the God-man. And the last line of this passage, verse 52, confirms this for us. Fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. Jesus, verse 52 tells us, grew. How does God grow? Grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Does does Christ, the eternal Son of God, grow? No. But now, through the eternal plan of God, before the foundations of the world were laid in the council of the Trinity, Jesus is submitting, He's doing something new to to accomplish our salvation, and he puts on flesh, not as some sort of spiritual hologram, but as man, bone, and, and flesh, and he actually grows. Somehow, I, I don't know that I understand that, he actually learns. This verse, verse 52, along with verse 40, is like a summary statement. The Bible gives us a cap, if you will, for all Jesus' 30 years before his uh, adult ministry, his public ministry begins. Look at verse 40, back at the beginning of our passage. This is the summary of the first 12 years of Jesus' life up to this point. Dr. Luke tells us, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God, the grace of God was upon him. That's verse 40. Now we get the next 18 years of his life after this account with Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. In verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Again, we see the fullness of Jesus' humanity at work. He grew physically in wisdom and in grace. He was truly man. And as such... He understands. I hope you can just exhale for a moment. As we think about how Jesus gets it. He gets what you're going through. He understands your pain, your frailty, your struggle. Being in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped. He, He took the form of man and he was born, we looked at this last week, into abject poverty. I like how the author of Hebrews writes it. Some of you have been studying through Hebrews together. One of these days, Rich is going to finish. Don't worry if you're in that class. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He gets it. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Take comfort, dear Christian. Jesus knows what loss is like. Jesus knows temptation to a level that you can't even begin to conceive because all of us in some way have been tempted to sin and we caved. Before temptation was was birthed to its most full and manifest form, we caved. And yet Jesus felt the full weight of all the temptations that Satan, the enemy, could hurl at him. We'll see the account in the wilderness soon. And yet never 
cave to sin. He understands. He understands our frailty. What a gracious and kind Savior we serve. All right, one, one more simple application, and, and then we'll move on to, to Mary's closing thoughts. Take a note, if you would, on the timing, the the aspect of chronology that we see at work when we piece together this narrative here from uh, Luke 2 and from other parts of Scripture. We're told that Jesus was 12, all right? This is just basic arithmetic. We're not going to like be reaching into calculus or anything, okay? Jesus is 12, and it's clear at 12 he had a unique sense of calling and, and purpose to be about his father's work, and yet... He submits to his earthly parents. And what's he do? He goes back to the carpenter's bench. And not just like for a little stint. We don't hear a word about this God-man for almost two decades. For another 18 years, Dr. Luke tells us later in the next chapter that Jesus begins his earthly ministry at 30. This is 12. We get one line from Jesus at 12. We've got nothing after his birth to 12, and then we've got nothing for almost 20 years. Question, was this wasted time? Of course not. Absolutely not. So, what's it mean for us that God the eternal Son would humble himself like this. Not only to be born in poverty, but, but to wait like this. 30 years. Not wasted time. What's that mean for you and for me? We're certainly not Jesus, but what's it mean for you, Christian, in Christ, seeking to follow his ways, seeking to have, as we saw last week in Philippians 2, the same mind that he had to follow him. Well, I think one thing it means is that we ought to be where God has us. To serve him in the midst of our circumstance. I don't know. Do the dishes for the glory of God. Do your schoolwork, students, for the glory of God. Go to work for God's glory. Care for your aging loved ones for the glory of God. Jesus understands what it means to humbly submit to the station he's in. And not just to do the what of God's will, but to submit to the when of God's will. Even, even, perhaps especially, when it appears to not be so glorious. Sometimes we can't see, can we? How God is working in this station of life. Serve Him. Do what He's given you to do for His glory, understanding that God the Son modeled this too. All right, last, last thing. We'll button it up. Mary, we read, although she didn't understand really what Jesus was doing or saying, Mary, verse 51 at the end, 
treasured up all these things in her heart. I like how Dale Ralph Davis, he's my favorite, I'm just going to admit it, I love this guy, he's a biblical commentator. I love how Dale Ralph Davis uh, writes about this, this statement, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. He said, Mary was going over and over these matters, she was chewing on them as we say, pondering them, trying to think and process through them. make sure that we're, we're clear, Mary is pondering what kinds of things. Well, at least in part, the things that she doesn't understand. You see? It's not just her own personal pet theological truths that she loves and understands well that Mary's cherishing, that she's pondering in her heart, that she's meditating on. It's the stuff she doesn't understand that she's pondering here. Do you see? From verse 50 to verse 51. So, what's this mean for us? Well, I I love Mary's posture. I think this is a beautiful and faithful posture that God's Word is putting before us To model here, what do you do, friend, when you encounter something in God's word or perhaps something about his character that you just can't seem to grasp, something that you find puzzling, perhaps even troubling? Answer, well, we ought to do what Mary did. We ought to, even before the understanding clicks, We ought to treasure them up. We ought to begin mulling them over, meditating on them, praying for the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and insight to grow in His ways. I think the first verse some of us ever memorized, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not. Don't put the weight of your leaning on your own understanding Remember, the heavens are pretty high above the earth. Don't lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths not easy, but straight. That's the promise. Mary is confused. Mary is befuddled about these words and the the ways that her 12-year-old son is choosing to act, and yet she's pondering. She's meditating. And by God's grace, when we see her next, we see that she's grown. There's a sweetness. There's a, there's a deeper faith there. It doesn't, of course, mean that the Lord, as we meditate upon the things in His Word that are just beyond our grasp, that He's going to, that He's duty-bound to immediately make it crystal clear to us. But This is what God's given us to do, isn't it? James chapter 1. If you need wisdom, what's the Rx? What's the prescription? Well, you you ask Him. He's a good Father. And believe as you're coming before Him, as you're asking Him for wisdom, for the resources to do and to to walk out what He's given you to, to do or to walk out. Believe that He'll give you that wisdom. Maybe we ought to be treasurers 
We got to spend more time pondering like faithful Mary. Those things that we don't understand. After all, friends, he is a, a father, a very good, a very powerful, a perfect heavenly father. That's what Jesus teaches to us at age 12. And if your child were to come to you asking for a fish, would you give him a snake? What a twisted thing to do. <laughs> if he were, he were to ask you for an egg, this is Jesus teaching a couple decades later, would you give him a scorpion? How much more will your heavenly Father give good things? Give, Luke teaches us a little later in his gospel account, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. May God grow us up in our humility in the waiting phase. In our humility and the, the, the lack of discernment. May we, with the mind of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wait well. Wait and serve Him joyfully. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for this simple account, for this head-scratching account of, of your son, our king, our savior, and, and this three-day hiatus he took from his family to, to teach us, Lord, about you, to, to lay a new and beautiful path before us of understanding about how you are our heavenly father. Lord, help would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to grow in the grace of waiting? Would you help us like Mary when we don't get it? To, rather than throw up our hands in frustration or just ignore you and pursue our own way, Father, would you help us to ponder and to press into you for the answer? Lord, we believe that you're good and that you have promised to give us everything necessary for life and godliness. So help us now as we seek to serve you here, Friendship Community Church, to grow with one another as a family of faith. Make us like you for your glory and for the expansion of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said.